0: A better way to do this let me show you a better way you
1: don't have to be another face in the crowd and we are live welcome everybody to episode 3158 of the survival podcast i was looking for something fun to do today something more of a skill set like homesteading thing that would apply to everybody, because if you do something that will work in the suburbs, it'll work out on the farms as well, or out of large acres, broad acres. As we say in permaculture, backyards to broad acres. And I actually wanted to talk today about indoor hydroponics. I wanted to revisit that topic again. But we believe in democracy around here, so I went on Twitter, and I went on MeWe, and I set up a a uh, a poll and said, what do you want to hear about? And I gave three options. One was backyard chickens. One was inside hydro for winter. And one was just basic permaculture principles. Basic permaculture principles got slaughtered. Indoor hydro and backyard chickens on Twitter tied the exact same amount of votes. For a while, the chickens were winning on Twitter They got knocked back, and then we ended up with a a literal tie, two-hour time limit. If I let the time go longer, who knows? But you got to have rules when you vote, right? you got to actually enforce the rules. So I was like, okay, MeWe's going to break the tie, so I'm going to be talking about Hydro today. And I'd already made the thumbnail of the chicken because it looked like the chickens were going to run away with it, you know, pun intended. I went back over to MeWe, and poll was closed. Three votes. The chickens had it by three. It was a neck-and-neck Election. It was almost a, a Dewey defeats Truman uh, headline when I made the thumbnail, but in the end, Dewey won this time. He pulled it out. All right. All right. So we're going to talk about chickens in the backyard today. And we're going to talk about this a little bit differently. We're going to talk about doing this old school, old school, American old school. European old school too, to a large degree, especially like England old school, World War II old school. Grandma and pop pop Spirico old school. And I'm not pop pop Spirko. I'm, I'm Papa Jack, right? Pop pop Spirico was my grandfather. Uh, first generation Ukrainian American, right? Um, we raised chickens. On their little homestead in a coop and run arrangement, we actually did a double run, one out of each side of the coop and we did a large crop. So this was a pretty big run that we had developed for our birds and we, we planted our sweet corn every year where the chickens were the prior year worked really well. And there's this, uh, real desire now and it, it's, it, you know, I do it. I do free range and there's some trade-offs with this, but people want to make the birds as wild as possible and all. And that's great, but do you know what happens when you let perfect become the enemy of the good? You end up in what I call useless stasis. Useless stasis means you never do anything. You're in a in a, a complete holding pattern, a someday pattern, you get nothing done. The other side of it is we're going to leave off today with the fact there's some real advantages to coupon runs. There really is. Um huge advantages. And uh, Tony, thank you for the uh, thank you for the uh, super chat there 499. ninety nine. I really appreciate it. We'll make a comment on yours when we get to the end today, uh, on your on your comment. Um, but yeah, there's just some real advantages, and they're not unhappy birds in a, in a coop and run environment if you do it right. And there's some things that you have to do to do it right, in my opinion. And then there is also the fact that we don't always have to keep coop and run chickens in the run. There is what you call like nighttime liberty or evening liberty. You guys that were in the military, maybe that'll make sense. And we'll cover that today, too. And there's just a a lot to be gained from doing this. And so I'm coming at this today for the people that live where your neighbor's right there, right there, and right there, right? On, On all three or four sides of you, you have a neighbor. And you probably don't think you have enough room and you can do this if you do it right. As long as you don't have HOA blue hair, Karens or things like that. And there's a way that I think makes the most sense to do it right. When you understand the fact that the next person to buy your house might not want chickens like out where I live, you can bet that most people that buy a place like this, they're going to probably have some livestock but when you're you know when you're right in the middle of kind of urban suburban america subdivision america even if you can have chickens it you're probably going to find that you're in the minority of people that do so i think you'll like today's show and if you are a, a larger property you want to scale up a lot of this will translate as well and you might actually find that this might be a good way to do things like raise a group of birds that you want to breed that you want to prevent their genetics from spreading into the rest of your flock would be a way to keep a small number of breeders this way or for a specific purpose like a controlled composting. So I think this will fit for everybody. Before we do that, let's start off with our sponsor of the day. It is Paul Wheaton. Uh, Paul usually gets the last stream of the week. He's got some cool stuff. Today we have something for for him or from him that I think you guys are really going to dig. Paul has done a massive amount of work with rocket mass heaters and just flat out better ways to heat with wood. He's got a great set available for you guys today. Uh, You'll be able to find it in the show notes. You'll be able to find it in the video notes below, but I don't think I got this link in just yet. So if you're watching it live, you might have to wait until after I finish or get over to the survivalpodcast.com. You can find the link there. If you're watching this, video and a rerun. I will have made that edit by now. I realized as I was saying this that I hadn't done it yet, but I thought it would be best just to let Paul tell you about this product. He's got this great video here, so I'm going to mute my mic, play this for you, and then I will be back and we'll we'll get on into the show.
0: I'm Paul Wheaton. A few years ago, I was asked to film a sold-out workshop on Rocket mass Eaters. I offered that video as DVDs through Kickstarter, and interest was a hell of a lot bigger than I thought it would be. For those of you that are new to rocket mass heaters, this might be the cheapest, cleanest, and most sustainable way to heat a conventional home. That particular workshop built one pebble-styled rocket mass heater using a shippable core prototype. And since we built the actual rocket mass heater so fast, we were able to squeeze in some stuff about rocket hot water, rocket stoves, and pocket rockets. Fire Science is a three-hour presentation on every rocket mass heater workshop. The people watching the video wanted more. Some people wanted to learn how to make their own shippable core. Some people wanted to learn how to make Cobb-style rocket mass heaters. With high-quality recording gear, we set out to expand these goodies for you all. Rather than limit our footage to one small event, we've gathered footage from three workshops, one innovators event, and several other projects covering a total of 10 separate Rocket Mass heater designs. We then made four more DVDs. The first covers the most basic and popular rocket mass heater construction, featuring two separate designs using cob, one in a log structure and one in a teepee. The second DVD shows the construction of three pebble-style rocket mass heaters. This includes information on building on a conventional wooden floor the third DVD shows building several different styles of shippable cores. The last DVD covers the most difficult part of any rocket mass heater build, the manifold. Plus, several new designs from our innovators event, including a batch box style rocket mass heater burning cleaner than anything we have ever seen. A rocket mass heater that doubles as a cooker and smoker, the ring of fire showing glass in a burn tunnel, and an indoor rocket griddle oven and water heater. This all means that we now have a total of eight DVDs and two packages. A little knowledge, and some simple materials, and you can have luxuriant, clean, cheap heat. (laughs)
1: Alright guys, and all of that, 40 bucks. 40 bucks link at the survival podcast right now. And again, I'll update the link down in the video, uh, uh, notes uh, as soon as we're done with the live stream. And as always, the actual, um, show notes will be up and live about one hour after the live stream ends. The other thing I wanted to do real quick, I just wanted to read a few boostograms that came in yesterday off from yesterday's show on Fountain. Um Obi-Wan faobi said 50,000 sats and said, I'm a founding MSB member. Sometimes I get into a dark place. Your show today hit me with perfect timing. Thank you for much needed help. Well, thank you for the very, very generous uh, boost of 50,000 sats. Uh, user 7789, hey, man, update your username. Put a real name on there. Just make something up. 5,000 sats, shirt I would buy. It depends. Then your logo somewhere. We'll see what we can do. Andy Bihoney commented on that, said, if times get tough or even if they don't, I would buy that. Uh, 1,000 sats from North Star Chris. Just reading the uh, the last Peter Zihan book about deglobalization. Are you familiar with his work? His future predictions make it all more important to be a modern survivalist. No, but I can imagine when you say deglobalization, there's going to be a lot of that coming. That's something we should do a show on. Maybe I'll check out his books. Drumsbell says, Jack, awesome info looking for raw land. Thank you, sir. Awesome info on looking for raw land. Yeah, I hope that was helpful. Uh, I know the demo was a little bit difficult to pull off, and it, you didn't get it if you were on the audio only. Nice that you found Alan Watts says Hermit's Design. Yes, he's funny all the time and so relaxed. I think the reason he's so relaxed is because he's he he was – very comfortable in his uh, mortality. Uh, Alan Watts is definitely worth checking out. Uh, Hobbit Nuts says, tomatoes, and put a bunch of tomato emojis in there and sent 500 sats. Thanks, Hobbit Nuts. Uh, Jordan Richter says, Google Earth has a ruler tool you can use to measure distance and area, uh, along with some stuff about a USDA soil site, but he says the uh, the area measurement tool is kind of clunky on that. He sent 500 sats. Thank you, Jordan. And user 1305, 500 sats, my first boost. That'll be it. Or Again, if we read every boost that came in for every episode, all we would do is read boost. But thank you to all of you who send them. I'm going to start trying to read, like, the top 10 per episode most days of the prior episode and see if I can do that. Anyway, with that, let's dig into this. Um I want to start out with, if you're going to run chickens in a coop and run environment, you don't have to take my first piece of advice, but I really suggest that you think hard about it and do it if you can. And my first piece of advice is start with birds who have never known life any differently than what you're gonna give them. In other words, chicks, which most people end up doing anyway. And the reason I say this is over the years, I've had instances where I've needed to confine birds short term for various reasons. And so I've had, you know, little chicken tractors that I've used as brooding chicken tractors for for baby ducks, geese, chickens along the way. And, you know, I might throw four birds in there uh, for a couple days for whatever reason. And when there are birds that have been free ranged, they don't seem very happy. They survive. I imagine if they stayed in there long enough, the little bird brain might be like, oh, life was always like this. And they go on. But they really don't seem happy. They seem miserable. They don't work. They don't do anything. They kind of sit there like, why am I in here? When I have raised birds in tractors or in confinement of some sort, and they've always been there, you can't tell that bird from any other bird as far as that bird being a happy chicken. You know, whatever whatever makes a happy chicken, that bird has it. If they have access to food and water, and relative comfort, and a dust bath, and other chickens, they're good. I do also want to say, like, if you have one chicken because you've rescued a chicken and you don't know what to do for now, fine. Chickens are flock birds, and I would say kind of a minimum number of birds for your flocks about four. Because if one or two die, you still have more than one bird, and you're not trying to go out and find an adult bird to integrate and looking for one that's been in a confined situation. Because when you see these videos, and I've seen it with ducks, I've seen it with chickens. You see any of these things with, with birds. And you see like the little kid comes home and a bird's waiting for the kid and you think it's all cute. What that is, is that bird is lonely. And, and people will tell you this to keep like parrots as pets or something like that. They're like, if you want a parrot or a cockatiel or something like that, is going to climb up on your shoulder and hang out with you. You need one bird. Because as soon as that bird has another bird, you're not interesting anymore to it, right? So just consider those two things. So now let's talk about since there is so much desire to do free range or paddock shift with electro net or something like that. And is that better in the grand scheme of things? Sure. But since there's so much desire to do that, we often lose sight of, well, what do we gain from a coop and run situation, and my buddy David, I don't know if he's going to be here long term, but I saw him in the chat already. There he is saying, greetings, citizens. He has a very small setup compared to what I'm about to talk about. And it works great. The birds are like inside the house and outside of the house. And they have this small area that looks like a rock garden. and His birds are happy. So what I'm going to describe today is a literal chicken Taj Mahal compared to what he's doing and his birds are happy. So... First thing, when you have birds in a coop and run environment, that's an advantage, is no Easter egg hunting. So, and I guess it's because my, I have these bantams that are like these crossbred bantams and they have a lot of English game, old English game bird in them and all, and old English game, uh, cock. And, uh, <laughs> David. Uh, but they are not laying in the coop at all. And they're laying all over the place. And we have a lot of fire ants here, so they're laying up in things, and they're small birds so they can fly. And so yesterday, for instance, I went out on the porch, and I hear if you've ever heard a hen where they're just going off, like people say the hens aren't noisy. They can be. And they're just like, bah, 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 and just going and going and going. And I'm I'm like, what the hell's wrong with that chicken? And Dorothy's like, they're laying in the planter again, and I took her eggs. So she was flipping her shit because all her eggs were gone. And she has this little artificial plant planter about, you know, like a couple gallon size, about a foot diameter in the top of this plastic plant. And they pushed it over it. They lay eggs in there. They're laying on my wicking beds and things like that. And sometimes when I find where they're laying, um, it's not a big deal because I find it relatively quickly. Sometimes we lose a lot of eggs because they, I, I don't find it. And those eggs have been sitting out there in the summer a long time. And then sometimes – You know, the other thing is you end up like going, there's a couple birds missing. And you think, did they get nailed by a hawk or a coyote or something? And all of a sudden you're like, I wonder what's going on over there because I see movement and you look and there's a bird and she's sitting on like 18 eggs. What if you don't want 18 new babies? And now you've got bird, a bird that's like halfway through an incubation period or they're like, like I just had to move one. She was up in one of my waking beds. She's five feet up or four feet up and I'm coming out. And I'm hearing babies screaming because every time she leaves to go get food or water, they bail over to the side. They can get down. They don't get hurt falling. They're so light, but they can't get back up. So I had to police her up and put her in a cage and I've got her stuck off in the coop. She's got 11 babies. I don't really want 11 babies right now. Well, If you're in a coop and run situation, all that goes away. Another thing is no predator problems, parentheses, it depends. Assuming you build your coop and run the right way for the situation that you're in with the predators that you have, you have no predator problems because the birds are either in the the run and protected or at sleep at night closed up in the coop protected. So it's either no predator problems or a lot less of a predator problem. I do want to explain something, though, that I've seen people do. And this doesn't necessarily work. <laughs> I've seen people do a coop and run, and they put an overhead that could either be like chicken wire or corrugated roofing material or uh, netting or anything. But it's not a closed coop. It's just an overhead protection. So you have like let's say a four foot high fence going around. You clip wings, birds aren't trying to get out. They don't know they can get out, what have you. And then you have a gap and then up at eight foot, you have a roof and you have a gap and that's going to protect from hawks. No, it won't. Is it better than nothing? Yes. Will a hawk eventually that's hungry, that's scoping your area, figure that out and go inside there yeah, I've had them, my my old aviary, I had a place where um, the hardware cloth pulled down and there was a gap of about a foot up at the top. And a Cooper's Hawk eventually figured out how to get in there and get at birds that I had in the aviary. So they will absolutely infiltrate. Hawks are extremely intelligent. So if you want to be absolutely hawk proof, you actually want a closed in aviary style run. It doesn't mean everybody needs it. It just means it's a thing. Uh, next up, if you do your job right, coop and run, nothing stinks, everything's clean. So your, your caring neighbor behind you will not be complaining and you won't be like, this, this sucks. And we'll talk about how to do everything right. You have to do your side, but everything will be clean. You have nice, clean eggs. You have nice, clean bedding. Everything works just fine with a coop and run. And that's, that's different because. You know, you don't have any chicken crap on your front porch, on your back porch, on Karen's porch, or on your Porsche. And, of course, most of us don't drive Porsches. We're not all John Willis, but um, whatever vehicle you have, trust me, chickens will get on them, and they will poop on them. And you really don't want them, like if you're in a neighborhood environment, going over the fence And pooping on Karen's porch. Because that's when Karen really starts going full Karen on you. None of that happens. You don't have any dug up gardens. Chickens, one of the beautiful things about chickens, they'll eat anything people will eat. One of the bad things about chickens is they'll eat anything people will eat. Do you like sweet peppers? So do chickens. Do you like beans? So do chickens. So they won't be going into your gardens or your other places, including just... Like your landscaped areas that you have ornamentals in and digging everything up, right? That so that is obviously a good thing. The run itself can be gardened, and I I found this video for you. I've been talking about it here and there lately. I can't think of the guy's last name, but his first name's Josh. He's from Josh. He's from Australia. He's one of kind of the pioneers of making permaculture a mainstream thing in Australia. He's barely known in the United States. He might be a little light in the loafers and the way he sounds and all, but he's a really smart guy. And he did this video, uh, that was done on DVD back in the early 2000s. It was called Backyard Permaculture or something like that. And I found an online version of it. It's like 240p. So it's a little bit, it's a little bit, uh, grainy. But don't complain. I mean, it's uh, somebody transcribed, a, you know, tr- a video that was in old school square format and made it available for you. And the whole video is worth watching. He does front yard, backyard, drip irrigation off of uh, the uh, the gray water. But his design of his coop and run on the back fence is brilliantly done. And one of the things that he did was he used four by four posts for his fence and on the back side he put his chicken wire and on the front side he put trellis wire that gave about a four well, three well and a half inch gap so the chickens can't get at it and he put fruit trees the smellyard all along the front of that so the fruit trees are tying straight in to all that nutrient that is inside the, the chicken run and the other the other thing he did is he put tires down and then chicken wire around the tires and grew shrubs and bushes and things that are good and medicinal for the chickens right inside the run. The chickens can't scratch up the roots or get at the plants. All they can do is peck through. And you can look at that and you can come up with a lot of ways you can actually garden the run to one degree or another. The next is you can go to a double run. And this is what my grandparents did. My grandparents, we had an old, I don't know when it was built. I think my my grandmother's dad actually built the damn thing, chicken coop. And it had to run out both sides. And we did not have a cover. And we didn't have a hawk problem because we always had dogs. And the dogs were always around. And the dogs would always lose their shit about hawks. So, and then the birds could always go back into the coop. Now, one thing I want to say about that, if you don't have dogs and things to make the hawks go away, not only will hawks go into a run, they will, I don't care if you have a little bitty door down bottom, a hawk will go in there and go into your coop and murder your chickens. You you need to understand it because a lot of people think that won't happen. But between the dogs and the chickens being able to recess, we didn't have it. And we, like I said, we grew our sweet corn on both sides of that run. And it did beautifully because all we did is what we're going to talk in about here in a second about how to manage that run. We did that all year long. We took some of that material and put it in the garden. Most of it we left where it was and we just planted straight into it. And we just moved those birds back and forth. What I would do in a southern climate, I would actually grow food for the chickens in a half cycle along with something for humans in a long cycle. So in in the period of time where you could grow out something like buckwheat or cowpea or something like that, and you don't have to grow cowpea all the way out to peas, they'll eat the plants. I would actually grow a little bit for the birds and then stagger that because you only need maybe a couple months to be able to grow something in our long climates in the south that the chickens can actually use, put to the ground, and, and increase this even more. Uh, and, again, guys, do use all caps when you're asking me questions. I am starting these as we go. Uh, but with, i got a lot to cover today. I'm going to be going fast so I can certainly miss stuff. So all caps will help me to try to uh, to, to, to make sure I star everything. Uh, if we don't have any uh, technical issues today, no matter how long it takes, I will stay and answer all questions today. Uh Next up, if you are composting and you have certain things you want the chickens to really work, you can build compost bin inside the run, and you have complete control. And because the birds are confined to the run, they're going to work the compost heavily. Where if you give them free access to compost bits, they'll work it when they feel like it. So you get a very controlled composting mechanism with the chickens. And you can mostly automate this stuff as well. And one of the things I wanted to bring up, we have a discount with Secure Coop, who's a member of, Chris is a member of our community, and he sells uh, doors along with the software and apps that you can actually automate your door opening, automate your door closing and and get text messages telling you like the doors open when and so this is definitely well-suited. And if you're not doing a coop and run, you can certainly still automate the door of your chicken coop. But man, if you're doing a coop and run, and you have that small door on the side of the coop where that bird can get out, to, the birds can get out to the run and come back in at night. If you take this, if you take this and you add to it something like a 50 pound hopper feeder and a, a large watering feeder, or if you, you know, tap into your, your, your pressurized water with a float valve, you can go, you know, a couple weeks without having to do much other than pick up eggs, especially if you go on vacation or you go away and, uh, and and you need somebody to, you know, kind of check in on things for you. They don't have to do very much. Pretty much go in the coop, get the eggs, make sure the door's closed, and you can have a neighbor check in every other day or so. Because this idea that if an egg sits around for a day or three uh, without going to the refrigerator, you'll die to eat it is just stupid. It's just we're not going to get into that today, but it's just stupid. Um, so automation really lends itself to this environment because the birds are never far away. Uh, next up, I want to talk a little bit about space requirements. This is something people always ask. I always say always err to the side of giving them more space than they require, if you can. But in general, here's your basic... Coop requirements three square feet to a bird four birds 12 square feet it's that simple i find that to be a little tight and so i say to go to more to a four square feet to a bird and i think that will get you just a little bit more breathing room birds sometimes just like people even birds that normally get along there's a time when like a like I need my space right now. I don't want to deal with you right now. I, I don't want to be around you right now. And so like if it's you and one of your buds and you feel like that, dude, I just need like I'm going to drink a beer over here. Uh, and, and I just need a, an hour to myself. And unless your friend's a dick, he's like, cool, whatever. Bye, man. No problem. Uh, if the, If you were in a room together and you couldn't get out, you don't really have that option. So I like to give them a little bit more room. So four square feet to a bird is my recommendation. Three is an absolute minimum. Roof space, which is when they go to bed at night, they don't want to be on the ground. They want to get up off the ground, and they want to get as high as they can. Ten inches per bird. I like to give them a foot, and when I tell you the size structures I'm recommending, you'll see why it's not even a big deal. Uh, That extra couple inches, again, just you'll notice that birds – Sometimes, like, all my birds actually roost up in the rafters of the shed that I have as a coop, And there's times where they just start fishing at each other, and one will just hop to another after. So the more space you give them, the more they can all find their own place. And, and pecking order is the thing. Um, next, runs. It is generally recommended that you you allocate at least 15 square feet in a run per bird. I don't have a problem with that, but I also would say we're talking about a run here. We're not talking about a coop we move around every day, one of these kind of tracker coop combination things. I'm not a fan of those. If that's what you have to do, that's what you have to do. I wouldn't put you down for it. But if you're actually building a run, I say build your run at least 100 square feet. That's only 10 foot by 10 foot, right? Or, you know, it's about 14 by 8. So to me you're not giving up that much space and it's just much easier for you to work with the run if it's a bit bigger And because if, and the other thing is when I'm going I'm about to go through some example numbers here and real quick you'll see like when you want to expand your flock, if you follow this advice, everything's really really easy. I'm also big on if we're going to build or buy, let's stick to standard lumber dimensions, which are generally eight foot. 12-foot, 16-foot on board length, 4-foot, 8-foot on sheeting length. So to me, it just makes sense. Let's just stick to what we have the least amount of waste material with, we can do the least amount of cutting with. So here's an example. If you had six birds, what I think is a really great backyard flock size, that's plenty of eggs. You're looking at probably four to five eggs a day most of the year when your birds are young and they're producing really well, call it four. That's 28 eggs a week. That's a lot of chicken eggs. It really is. That's enough for your family generally, and to give some away to Karen so she doesn't cause too much trouble. But six six birds should have 24 square feet of coop space. That would be a coop as small as six six by four. That would barely make the grade. I say if you're going to build a coop... I recommend that you put in a shed, eight foot by eight foot. That that's your baseline. Now, why? Well, you can buy an eight by eight shed kit from Lowe's if you want everything prefab, and it's really easy to put one together if you're good at DIY. For about eleven hundred or thirteen hundred bucks, even now, even with the price increases, and those price increases are starting to come down. All right. Now. Now you've got 64 square feet, so you're 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 golden on your six birds. Why do I recommend this though? When you sell your house, and Karen Karen two, because you already got Karen living behind you, and Karen two comes in and goes, I want my house. And she goes, I don't want chickens. You know what you have? You have a shed. It adds resale value to your home. All you do is wreck out all the stuff that's for the chickens, and you have a shed. Karen has a shed. Karen is happy. If Karen wants chickens, she has a coop. Karen doesn't want chickens. She has a shed. Always think about the fact, even if you think it's your forever home, you always want an extra strategy from a piece of real estate. And that makes it really simple. You have a shed. Two, when you start looking at like these small coops and all, if you're going to, if you're not going to build it yourself, you're talking, these things are selling $600 or more for basically a doghouse. If you're going to build it yourself, I guess, you know, that's fine. And we're going to cover that K-Bonk, but I'll, I'll start anyway, just in case there's anything left on it I don't cover today. Coop versus tractor. I, I'm in, I'm in coop and run mode today, guys, because I'm in suburbia. And most suburbanites, you're not going to have a really big tractor. And so you're going to get up in the morning, You're going to do whatever you have to do before you leave the house. You're going to go to work, and you're going to come home at 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock at night. You're going to be tired. You're going to be pissed off. You just got off the road. You're going to want to do as little work as possible. And moving a chicken tractor in a suburban environment where there's not that much space you're using, that probably should be done right twice a day. And you're going to be lucky to do it once a day. And it's not good for your birds to be confined to an area smaller than the area they should be on. And ideally with tractoring chickens, you're bringing them across an area once a year, twice a year at most, and definitely no more than once a season. So the average suburban yard, that's not going to work well for you. So I'm I'm in coop and run mode. But again, if you have an eight by eight shed, you have an asset to the next homeowner, even if they don't want anything to do with chickens. Next, I would say that we're going to need uh, six feet of roost for six chickens. And I would say if you have an eight by eight, just put a roost across two walls, 16 foot. Screw it. If you get more chickens, you got roost space. And I use just a two by four on an angle. And since it's indoors, I use white wood stud lumber. So it's really seven and a half by seven and a half and put all your roost. You might put some roosting uh spots that they can get up with like stairs, but put all your primary roost at the same height. And there's a reason the birds are going to want to get as high as they can. Now, if you know this, if you get a shed that has rafters, they're going to do every unless you clip wings, they're going to get all the way up there. That's where they're going to end up. And we'll, I'll talk a little bit about that in a second. Some things you might want to do to deal with that fact if you don't want birds causing poop where you don't want it inside your coop. Uh, but you want to make all your roosts the same height because every, everybody's going to – it's like the prime real estate is as high as possible. That's where they feel as safe as possible. Uh, you'll need right at 90 square feet of run for six birds. So this is why I'm big on going with the 100-square-foot run. Why not just do that? You got a little bit of extra, no problem, what have you. And then you're going to look at 10 by 10 to 14 by 8 in your dimensions, just to kind of get in your head. It's not that much space. Most people in a standard suburban lot, you've got plenty of room for run that length or longer, plus that shed along kind of your back fence or one of your side fences. And back fences work really well for this. From a design element standpoint in the suburbs. So let's go to 12 birds. We'll double everything, but you just see how quickly all of this thinking of kind of the minimum pays off if we, because that's a big flock for a backyard. 12 birds is a big flock for a backyard, guys. Um, 48 square feet of coop. Your 8 by 8 still handles it. 64 square feet. 12 foot of roost. Two walls. Two 8 foot uh, 2 by 4s pegged off the wall, you're good. Again, they're probably going to go up in the rafters anyway. And 180 square feet of run. That's a 10, you know, go 10 by 20 or 200. That's that's using pretty much standard dimensional lumber, really, really easy to do. Um, If you want to be more narrow, you go 8 by 24 is 192 square feet. That'll work. And that, then you're really, you know, in kind of a dimensional lumber space then, 8, eight by 24, right? You got, if you're going across, you got 8s, 24s is just 3 eighths or 2 12s. And you're staying in that, and I like that standard dimensional lumber space. Um if David's still here, you he can tell you there's been some projects that I've done keeping to that philosophy and pretty big project. And at the end of the project, the scrap wood fits in a couple of 5 gallon buckets. Like you've done your job right when you can keep your scrap down to, well, that's a little bit of kindling and I'm not, I don't have a problem with it. I don't feel like I wasted anything. So I like going with those dimensional limits if you can do it, but it, just to get in your head, kind of what that looks like. And again, you can, you don't have to go overhead cover, especially if you clip wings and you're high enough, just understand you always have avian predator potential problems in that situation. And anything you're going to come up with that a chicken can retreat into the coop, I'm telling you right now, a hawk will fold its wings, land on the ground, and crawl through a freaking flat door. Not every hawk will do that, but eventually, if you have a lot of hawks, you'll find one that will do it. So you probably want to do something with a full and closed overhead. A little bit of thought on that. Many of you have seen my aviary. I have a 9-foot back wall. I use 16-foot hog panels. And basically kind of a lean-to design. I wouldn't do that in a backyard. But what I might do is something like my long walls go two feet high, eight foot apart, and then arch your hog panels over. And you don't need to use the little tiny wire like I use regular chicken wire. That would be pretty cheap to do. And I built mine so that each arch of my uh, hog panels, so the hog panels actually touch each other. No need to do that for something like this. You could have uh, those panels, I think, are 60 inches. You could have between panels. You could go easily four feet, six feet. And I would just take regular electrical conduit, and I would have it right at the bends and right down the center, spanning the gap, and then chicken wire over the top. Now, here's the beauty of that again. Here's our exit strategy. Build your two-foot walls on cinder block, and do that uh, all with screws. You sell to Karen. Karen doesn't want chicken coop and run. It's a half-day work. You can take everything apart. You have the lumber. You can salvage it. You can leave it with Karen. You can take it to your next property. You roll up your chicken wire. It can be reused. And then you have some hog panels. So it just disassembles. And I would try to build, unless you really are confident how long you're going to be there, with, like, a conversion over to a homeowner doesn't want want what you want situation. All right. Um, And I really recommend, no matter what you do, that you build your coop and run environment so that you as a grown-ass man can walk inside your coop and walk inside your run, standing up, not bent over like this. I won't get deep into why I'll just tell you that every time i built something that wasn't like that, I really wished I had because you're going to need to go in there. You're going to need to do work. You're going to need to get things done, and it's pouring rain here. I don't know if you guys can hear that. We've got thunder and lightning, and it's just gorgeous. The monsoons have come after 20 months of no real rain. It's great. Everything's turning green. Um, Be careful of one thing I've seen a lot of people do. It's really tempting to use your back fence as the, as the backside wall of your run. I don't recommend it. One, you share that fence probably with a neighbor. Now you have something attached to it. Two, dogs and neighbors have dogs like to figure out what's on the other side of a fence and you're likely to eat a chicken's head right off when it, when it digs a hole and a chicken sticks its head under there, I say come off your fence. If you use a push lawnmower, make it big enough that you can run your push lawnmower and walk right back through there, the gap off the fence. If you use a riding lawnmower, you're probably more in the neighborhood of 5 feet 60 inches so that you can drive your lawnmower right back through there. And I would keep my shed off the fence the same distance. Unless you have no other choice, that's what I would recommend you do. And every time I haven't done it, I've thought, you know what, you should have done that. And I've gotten better and better at keeping things off walls, off fences, leaving service area access points. Um, think about every time you've worked on a car and you've had to get at something, and you looked at it and said, this doesn't have to be that way. They could have left more access room And you want to kill an engineer. Don't do that to yourself with something where you have a lot more room than underneath the hood of a car. Um, next, I want to talk about substrate in your coupe and what to use. To me, the gold standard is straw. You can get it almost anywhere even if you live in a city where you don't think you have feed stores and stuff like that around, you probably do just check Google or I use brave search or what have you and look around you. You probably have someplace you can go and you can buy bales of straw. A single bale of straw will completely cover the floor for a cycle in an eight by eight, uh, coupe. It's going to be inside. So it's going to stay dry. And all I do, I do a deep litter method. And what I mean by that is when I look at the straw and go, yeah, there's a lot of poop on that straw. We need more. We just add more. We just add more straw. We keep doing it until it's, man, my coop, I, I wreck my coop out once a year. And it's about a foot, like I'm standing a foot taller in there. That's why I like a shed design with a rafted roof. I'm not banging my head still, even being a foot taller. I'm only five, five eleven. So I, I, you know, I can grow a foot and I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a basketball player now and I can still kind of walk around in there. Maybe a rafter gets in the way here and that works because that's dry material. And I actually get a lot of wood chips. So I'll do. The feds did not get me. I am back. I don't know how long I was gone for. Um we had a uh, a flash brownout with uh we have a pretty good lightning storm going out there and that's uh that's uh that's what was going on. It took me a while to get back. The power on everything stayed up because I have a UPS. Uh, but I guess the last time I redid all the wiring on it, I must have hooked up the cable modem to one of the non-backed-up power ports, my accident, because what happened is the cable modem went down. So let's try to re-enter where we were at. I, I don't remember exactly where we were at. Oh, I was talking about uh, Substrate. We were talking about Straw, and I apologize. This is two days in a row with uh, interruptions, but what can you do? We'll power through. Uh, kudos to uh, StreamYard that if I leave, the room stays open. And we can just drop right back in and and, and start back where we were. So I was saying I have wood chips as well. And about every cycle what I'll do is I'll do like two bales of straw. And then I'll bring in like three wheelbarrows of wood chips. And then I'll do two bales of straw. And then I'll bring in like three wheelbarrows of wood chips. So my coop floor is wood chip, straw, wood chip, straw, wood chip, straw. Either one of those is fine. Either one of those is fine. Uh, Wood chips are fine by themselves. I've seen people use Christmas tree shreddings and no problems. I've heard people worry about that. It is true that chickens in general are not big on cedar. And chickens and poultry in general are not big on cedar. It's the cedar oils. And it's because chickens and reptiles share a common lineage. And anybody that keeps snakes and lizards knows not to keep them on uh, cedar chips It's limited in – it's while those chips are still excreting oils. Once they kind of get to where they're not, it doesn't really matter to them anymore. But I would stay away from cedars. But straight up Christmas tree shreddings, I've seen that work fine. My grandparents, you know, these were Depression-era people. And they didn't spend money unless they had to. And we didn't grow anything that made straw. And we were damn sure not going to buy straw for a chicken and so I would be sent back into the woods. We had a lot of uh, big white pine around us and it ha- they have the really long pine straw needles. That's what we used. We used pine straw uh, in the chicken coop and it was fine. We used a lot of it in the chicken runs. We used a lot of leaves in the chicken runs, like oak leaves and, and walnut leaf and stuff like that. Like, and I know people say, Walnut stuff won't grow. It'll die. Right Now, it wasn't like tons of it, but if some walnut leaf got in there, no one really cared. But it was mostly like oak leaves, is oak and maple. We had two huge sugar maples in the back, so I, that would all get raked, raked up and put away, and as they needed more and more bang in the, in the runs, uh, we would use leaves. So going on to the runs, um, I would say that you want to look at things like leaves, grass clippings, straws okay, Uh, Wood chips are golden. Like, in my experience, the more carbon you're putting down and the longer lasting the carbon, the greater the lockup of stick. And really the way to think about it is your coop substrate is an inactive compost pile. You have carbon and nitrogen, but you don't have moisture. You only have the moisture from the poop. And, And so you get a little bit of a block up bond and then nothing really happens. And so if you're, as long as you're keeping enough, as long as you're keeping enough carbon in your coop, you're not going to have stink. You have to overwhelm the carbon with enough excrement to have a problem. And if you start having that, you either add more carbon or if you get too much buildup, then you have to pull out and start again. A run it's a slow, active pile, especially in your wet season, because you get a lot of rain. So if you, um, if you see it that way, then you know that, like, your priority is carbon in the run. And so I would add as much carbon to your run as necessary, and you'll find, like, this time of year when it starts raining, that you'll need a lot more carbon in there, and then through your summers when everything's dry – you, you don't know you're anywhere near enough. And just, if you just think about it that way, I've got an inactive compost, uh, ready to go. Cause generally speaking, if you're doing it right, when you wreck out a chicken coop, you can put that stuff into a pile and wet it down. You don't need to add anything. It'll take off. You've got plenty of nitrogen in there. You just have not had enough moisture for, for nature to do her thing in the, the dance of the nitrogen, uh, the carbon nitrogen cycle. Um, when in doubt, add more carbon. That's all you got to do. If like it's, I I think maybe I then just do it. You're not going to ever add too much carbon. Um, feeding and water, access to water always. However you do that, I like the little chicken chicken drinker cups. I think that they make a lot of sense. They keep water from getting messed up and nasty. With a little bit of uh, water tank and uh, some PVC, you can put a lot of sustainability to where maybe you're adding water once a week, a float valve in a tank and let the tank pressure go down to waterers. And you can have that set up to where your birds don't have to worry about water ever unless your water goes off. And that's really nice. Again, because I'm I'm thinking of the suburbanite today and most people, they're two income families. Everybody's at work. There's baseball, you know, if you're in that, that age where you have the kids, there's baseball games or, jujitsu or whatever or you know cheerleading or whatever it is for the kids you're busy the more you can make just happen on its own the better off you are when it comes to feed everybody wants to feed their grow my own feed feed the birds for free whatever stick to the base of your feed at least as you're learning being a good quality chicken feed for me i am way more concerned about feeding a non-soy feed than an organic feed if you buy purina crumbles for layers Soy, conventional, cheapest, worst feed as far as quality you can get. In my opinion, your chicken eggs that you're getting from your flock are still way ahead of anything that you're going to get from a store. And then everything you do from there to be better is better yet. So when you have chickens in a a run, people think that that bird's not going to get access to, like, bugs and stuff like that. Bugs are stupid. Bugs are stupid. Bugs go to where smells are. There's all kinds of smells in a chicken coop. There's all kinds of smells in a chicken run. Even when you're doing everything right from the carbon end, where it's not something that annoys you or your Karen neighbor, there bugs smell. Bugs will go there, and they will get eaten. They will get devoured. Um, Scraps, scraps, and scraps. Like, if you would eat it, give it to the chickens. If you wouldn't eat it, give it to the chickens. The chickens will either eat it or something will come to eat it, and they'll eat the, the bugs and insects that come to eat it. Um, but this is something most people don't know about scraps. When people talk about, you know, feeding the the, the the chickens scraps, and, you know, grandma, grandpa used to do that, great-grandma used to do that. They did. They were more concerned about the birds getting nutrition than we are. They were more stingy about buying feed than we were. And they were more concerned with the birds eating what they were given quickly. So what most old timers did actually was they took all the food scraps and they saved them up until they had a decent quantity. They threw it in a pot. They covered it water with water. And most old timers, they were able to use it. Like we had a coal stove or a wood stove and it burned year round because you had to have heat. You had to be able to cook on a stove. So some, like we had actually a coal stove in the house and we had a wood stove outside on the porch because you didn't want a stove burning in the summer in the house. So what they did is they would take like a stock pot full of all the scraps and throw it in there, and they would cook it down until it was like a mush. And that's what they fed their chickens. You're probably not going to do that, and that's okay. But the reason I bring this up is a lot of times you'll take scraps out to the chickens. And if you're not ever kept chickens before, you expect those chickens are going to start eating that stuff right away, and they don't. And it begins to break down it and beca- it, it attracts insects and things like that. And as it begins to break down, then they actually eat it. But if you wanted to do it like grandma did, grandma cooked slop for the hogs and slop for the chickens. And that's something I, I think a lot of people in this whole modern homesteading generation are unaware of. Roast stuff for them they like if you want to. Sprouts, really, really easy to do. Um, sprouts are real simple to do. David, who was here and communicating with who when I was offline, one of the ways he does sprouts, whatever is going to sprout, including ryegrass. They'll eat ryegrass sprout. You take a a ball jar and a ring and a piece of screen, like screen for a screen window, and you put that screen, you, you throw your seed in the jar, you put that screen over the jar and you put the ring on it to hold it in place. You fill it up with water, you let it soak for a while, you turn it upside down in a dish rack and you let it sit there. You can do this with sunflower seeds. You can do this with anything you want to sprout. Be careful sprouting. Look things up before you sprout. There's certain things that we can sprout that we can literally make cyanide and toxins in the sprouts, even if the plant eventually becomes edible. Um, it's either, I think it's millet that will do that. You don't want to do millet sprouts. I'm pretty sure it's millet. It's not millet. It's sorghum. There are some things you need to always check with sprouts. Like, is there any risk? Because all the sprouting websites will tell you, like, yeah, don't do that. If it's not good for you, it's not good for them. But whatever you're going to sprout, you put it in there, and every day you just fill up with some water, shake it up to rinse it, turn it upside down, set it in a dish rack. And you can make a jar of sprouts. You can have three or four-day cycle, three or four jars. You can have a jar of sprouts a day for your chickens. You can do my method of uh, sunflower seed sprouting, which is using buckets with holes drilled in them. And you can make a lot of sprouts. You can use cheap black oil sunflower you buy for feed birds. And with a small flock, a a solo cup like we used to buy for a kegger party, like that many a day is plenty for a small flock of six birds. I used to do one big scoop. I don't know how big those are, but a standard feed scoop, one big scoop a day for 30 birds. And it was plenty of sprouts for them as a supplement. But feed them anything that they'll eat, basically. And, like I said, bugs are stupid, and the more stuff you're giving the birds, the more bugs will come, and the chickens will happily eat all of them. But one of the best hacks I've ever found, and I do this with my, uh, my ponds as well for the fish. Take a bug zapper, hang it over your, hang it inside your chicken run, put a pan underneath it, a little feed pan, like the ones you buy at uh, Tractor Supply and what have you, that are, about that big. They're made out of like a heavy rubber. Stick that underneath there. Bugs will come, get zapped, and fall down be easy for the chickens to find in that uh, that thing. Get yourself a simple $8 mechanical timer. Set that bug zapper to come on about eh, two hours before dark and to run about two hours after dark. Don't waste your time going through the night. Every kid that's ever camped out and watched the bug zapper with his buddy, Well, you told ice about girls and drank a beer you stole from dad's refrigerator knows. About two hours into it, you get one zap here and there throughout the night. It's that twilight into the first darkness that you get a lot of bugs from it. Um, I definitely recommend you look into a rat-proof feeder because rats like to eat chicken feed. There's a lot of different ones on the market. I personally, so if anybody here in the chat has a personal recommendation for a model, Uh, go ahead and put it in all caps and I'll make sure we talk about it here in just a minute when we go through everything that I've starred. And if you put in anything that was in all caps while I was down, I didn't see it and I can't go back and look for it. So you might want to repeat it, but I I definitely recommend a a rat pro trap. What I've done, I use, if if you've ever been around commercial areas, you'll often see these black boxes that are, are for rat poison and I hate using poison, but it's what's worked for me. Uh, you put these sticks inside it, and the rats can't pull it out. Your animals can't get inside. Even squirrels really can't get inside. And all I do when I've had – i don't, I've had not had a problem in a long time between the cats and the dogs. But when I have had problems, I'll put that up somewhere where I know the birds aren't going to mess with it. And uh, it works really fast. It, it wipes out rats really fast. Mice – somebody asked me about mice in the pre-show lead-up to this, and – My experience has been, if a mouse goes where chickens are, woe be the mouse. I have seen chickens flat, and I mean even bantam chickens murder mice. Remember, the chicken comes from the dinosaur, and I don't think they've completely forgotten that. Um, But I've I've not had a problem with mice. If you do, again those same, and I, I don't remember what you call them, but they're a box. They have like it's like launching a nuclear. Uh, strike. You have two keys. You have to use them simultaneously to open it. They're really, really safe. And people worry like if mice or rats eat that stuff, and the, like your dogs or your cats eat them, that they're gonna, it's gonna be like a pass through toxin. And when I, I, I was really concerned about this because I had a bad problem for a while with rodents, and they had, it would, it's, it's such a small amount per animal. They would have to eat a lot, like. A ton of them for it to kill even a like a, a 15 pound uh, Tomcat, let alone a dog that's like a 40 pound dog. They're they're probably not gonna do it. And the way that I've handled it is you put out a box, you you wait till the rats take all of it, and then wait a week, and then redo the trap and put it out again and see if it's being taken. And what will happen is even with the one week pauses in between, you'll get to a point where you open it and like half the poison is consumed after like a week and there's and it, it never gets the rest of it gets consumed. That's because all your rats and mice are gone and they kind of mummify and they don't stink when they do that. And I, I hate it, but I don't have a better solution to it. But if you start out with a rat proof fear, that helps a lot. What I've done personally since I free range, for those of you that can and do, I don't keep feed anywhere near my coop. My birds eat in my backyard out in the middle of the field, and will be the rat that, that dares to appear before Fox and Dana who set up to hunt birds out there because the rat bird they don't care, or the dogs. And so I since I started doing that, and there's no feed for them there between those and the snakes that come here and there before I can get rid of the snakes and they start eating eggs. I haven't had a rat problem in four years. I haven't had to use any of that toxin. I haven't had to worry about rat-proof feeders or what have you. So I guess it's all dependent on individuals. Um, a bit on meat, really, really quick. I really didn't touch on that today. I'm coming from a standpoint today of mostly uh, backyard uh, egg-laying chickens. I'll say two things about meat for you today. One, cull birds are meat. And when you you look at the life cycle of a chicken, it is going to produce the absolute most eggs for you from about six months of age to a year and a half. And somewhere around that year and a half mark, it may be a couple months more or less, depending on when you hit, you know, when that bird started and when it hits that first fall, that first end of summer, the bird's going to molt. And it's going to shed every feather it has, not all at once so it won't be naked, but they literally get rid of every feather that they have. Mine are just coming out of it now. My my two roosters are just starting to get their tail feathers back and look pretty again. Um, and while it does that, it's not going to lay well. When it comes back out of the molt, it will lay fairly well for another season. In its third season, it will lay eggs you will never get enough eggs out of it to justify the feed. A best practice from a production standpoint would be you're bringing up your next generation so that they will start laying when your existing generation goes into molt. And if you have enough space, like we do with the ducks, we do exactly that. But our next generation of ducks is starting to lay when our old generation of ducks is stopping to lay, but we're not calling anybody and ducks have, 1500 eggs in their life duck uh, chickens have a a thousand so they're they're at a significant disadvantage if you really want maximum production at 18 months when those chickens are molting and easiest to pluck by the way if you want to hand pluck them that's when you would be culling and your next generation would have would have already absorbed your feed that your six months you're going to feed them before they start laying because that's about what it is. It's about 22 to 24 weeks or six months that you're going to feed a bird and get nothing. You get a year of eggs, you get a stewing a stewing hen, And that's probably the best approach if you have a flock of six to eight birds. You're getting six to eight birds a year that way after your first year and a half, every year. If you expand your flock, you give away eggs, you keep the cairns at bay. Maybe you have 12, you can do a dozen birds a year that way. These are not going to be birds that you're making stir fry or or barbecue chicken with. They're more of a stewing hen. However, I will say that if you follow, this is like where you got to start understanding, why did our grandparents do what they did? So we want to make fried chicken. So we use buttermilk and we make fried chicken. Your grandma let that chicken soak in that buttermilk for a day or two. Why? Because it tenderized that chicken. So if we do that and we use, you know, some common sense. We can actually make pretty respectable chicken that way. Now it's not what we're used to because it's not some Cornish cross Franken chicken that grew that big in like eight weeks. But you, 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 you can do really well with this approach. The next thing that you can do if you really are insisted on raising some meat chickens. This is where I would use a chicken tractor and I would just source and I wouldn't try to go too big with it. Maybe a dozen meat chickens a year, either some sort of um, like a crossbreed or a good dual purpose breed that you can source locally if you want to do that, or just go go to Tractor Supply or Atwoods or whatever and buy Cornish cross birds and run your meat run. And the beauty of that would be you're in your brooder for about three weeks. You're in a tractor for about eight weeks and you're done. And keep that separate from your egg flock for this small scale type stuff. I've heard from people that have done as many of like two dozen birds in like third acre backyards and had no problems with it and no problems with neighbors. And one of the really great things about doing meat runs that way, and I'm not going to get into how in this episode or it'll go way too long. But one of the really great things about doing that is the entire, it's about a three month process, 12 total weeks, and I'm done for the year. I'm done for the year because this we're, I'm back to the person that goes to work every day and comes home and, and has a million things to do and kids to take care of and is it does it really make sense? So those are the, the two at the two ways I'll look at that from a, a meat standpoint. I would say if you really want sustainable meat in the suburbs, quail rabbits are gonna be much better product for you than chickens. Chickens are more uh, we have our cold meat. Birds, which are delicious, by the way, have developed incredible flavor at that age. Uh, and then, you know, maybe a, a short meat run once a year. What about being, uh, what about breed? It is hard from a production standpoint to be red sex links, black sex links, pick your brown sex links, right? Right. And one thing to understand, if you're watching stuff online and you're hearing people from Australia or England or Europe talking about birds, and they're saying something like black stars, red stars, etc., cetera, they're the same birds. Our red sex link is their red, red star, the same birds. They are actually a fairly big bird. They produce a large egg, and they lay like crazy. They really are a bird, and I don't really know how to explain this. To think about the 18 month coal and replace cycle with them. And everybody that uses them for commercial production does this. They all get cold at their 18. When they go into, when they go into the, uh, brute the, or the malt, they're, they're done. They're getting cold as, you know, cheap meat, basically probably turned into nuggets or dog food or something. And the reason is they will start laying after that first cycle. But if you're selling eggs and all, they lay a, their eggs start to look weird. I don't know if anybody in the chat has, has noticed this with those types of birds, but they tend to get yeah, comets, stars, they are all the same, right? They, they start to get kind of pointy and weird shaped, a little bit faded in color at times or texture after that first cycle. Don't know why, but they do. Now, if you're it's for home production, you don't care. They'll lay pretty well for you, but they'll never lay like they will in that first cycle. Those production birds, that first cycle, they lay stupid good. I mean, just stupid good. And Liberty Meat Solutions is saying, I'll take meat ducks over Cornish Cross any day. And I would say, like backyard production, you want meat, you want Muscovy ducks for meat. If you want poultry, just different show. We've done it before. Just so much better than chickens for, they're quiet, they don't make any noise, clip their wings, they don't fly, they raise their own babies, they're almost no work at all, and they're freaking delicious, they taste like baby beef. Um but that's, that's why I would go there. Uh, in the end they'll get what you want. I, I think that like people, again, you can get into this like do nothing stasis, like I need you to know what breed, get what you want. If you like astrolops, get astrolops. If you like silky chickens, like because they're funky looking or whatever, get them. If you like Delawares or Rhode Island Reds or whatever you want, in the end, they're all chickens. They all lay eggs. And I, I meant to say this in the beginning, but I got sidetracked. This is the thing about chickens. It's way easier if you've never done it. It's way easier than you think it is. There is nothing that you could put in a backyard that's less work for the return that you get. That's more forgiving, that's easier on you, it's less likely to you know die or kill itself or whatever than a chicken. First time around you might kill a bird or two, it'll happen. That's something about keeping livestock. But in the end, they're probably the easiest thing in the world. Just the easiest thing in the world that you can possibly keep. And so don't don't get upset about it. Don't 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 get into analysis paralysis. If you look at it, particular breed and you if you go down a tractor supply and you get missed pullets, you're gonna get plenty good eggs. You know, this is this again, small scale production. What about being myself sufficient, right? I don't I don't want to have to rely on a hatchery or whatever. Well if you don't have roosters, and many of you guys that live in you know suburban areas and stuff like that, you're not gonna have a sustainable flock on your own without somebody on the outside helping you. So just just relax. Like it you don't have to like imagine if you said, I don't want to have a car unless I'm self-sufficient for fuel. Well, then you're putting in a twenty thousand dollar solar array to do nothing but charge your car and you you're buying a sixty thousand dollar electric car. You, but what most people do is go to the gas station, right? Imagine if you said, "I, I want to be 100% self-sufficient for food, or I ain't eating it." Well, you get pretty skinny pretty fast if you did that. So if you can't have, if you can't have roosters, this is what my advice is, and you want to be more of a local thing. Go to Craigslist. I guarantee you, there's a lot of people selling chickens around you and start sourcing birds locally for your replacement. If you do have a rooster, somebody was asking about incubators right there. I actually do have a couple different incubators uh, uh, that I can recommend for you. Um, One is the one I'm using now, and I'm going to bring that up on the screen. And I, I think it's a great thing to incubate your own eggs. I do it. I don't know how necessary it is for the person that's keeping a flock of six to 10 birds. But I, I love this one. It's made by a company called Mana Pro. It's one of the like rotating incubators. I'm probably giving people a stroke right there the way I'm doing that. But I'll, I'll tell you what I like about it and what I don't like about it. You would have thought that would have been bigger. What I like about it is the programmability of it is really simple. I'm not going to get into it, but basically it comes with an instruction sheet, not a book. And it tells you, like, if you're doing chickens, it's this many days. And if you're doing ducks, it's this many days. You're doing geese, it's this many days. I wouldn't use this for geese. It's not really big enough, in my opinion. But chicken and ducks, no problem. Quail, no problem. It's very intuitive to set up. And then the next thing is the humidity. I have found that it works better than, than anything else I've personally used at holding humidity where it needs to be. The downside is that it has a relatively small water reservoir, and you pretty much need during the incubation period to pay attention to it every single day. And or I'd say every other day, you're gonna need to add water to it, which is really quick and really easy to do. The how is the other thing though. You'll notice down here if you're watching the video, there's a little red cap and then there's a little like cup right there and it's pretty small. Until you get to the lockdown period where you up your humidity, You basically fill up that cup that's exposed. And when you get down to your lockdown term, and it'll actually display that it's time to start doing this, you pull that little red cover off and you fill both of them. So it's easy, but it's something you're going to have to pay attention to like every other day to keep the humidity where you want. But if you do it, it's very, very consistent. It's also easy to overflow that sucker and spill a little bit of water. I just kept a towel right under there, so if it spilled a little bit, I didn't care. And we used, like, a little Star Wars cup that the grandkids like where you could kind of pinch it to make it, like, funnel go into there. Anything, like, a small pitcher, a small measuring cup, something like that would work well. It's not a ton of water that has to go in there. That's that's the negative of it. But that uh, that is, like, I'm happy with it. Uh, I'm completely content with it. I'll show you real quick the other one that I had. And this one finally died on me. And – but – I have no negative opinion of it dying after five years because this thing actually was sent in the mail multiple times to multiple people because I think that it, it makes a lot of sense to share incubators. This one actually does more eggs and it worked, I would say, a little bit better. It was, it, it's called the Incuview, I-N-C-U-V-I-E-W, all one word. And it's about 200 bucks. And it worked beautifully and I, I did do goose eggs, though you can only fit a few in there, uh, in this incubator as well. It holds something like 32 chicken or duck eggs and it it rolls them back and forth. It's a really slick way that it is. It's a little bit more of a pain in the butt to program. It's not hard. It's just a little bit less count. It's a little less intuitive. And the only way that you can add water to keep your humidity where you want it is to open it, which I would prefer not to do. The other thing is the way it's kind of a two-channel thing as well. So you're, you're basically just adding more water when you want your humidity to go up. But those are the two incubators. They're in the show notes for you. Um, I, I really think that most people that are, have small flocks, you're probably better off with the smaller one, the one that I'm using now. And if you're going to do a lot of incubating, you're probably better off going to some forums, checking out YouTube and learning how to build one your own of your own. You can build them much larger. One of my buddies, Michael, that's the guy that's one of our cooks uh, and staff members at the events. Many of you know, Michael, Um, he built one. He can hatch like a couple hundred eggs at a time. And I, I would recommend if you're going to go major scale, you're either going to buy commercial or build something. And, uh, I, I again, I have had incredible results. I did 18 Bantam eggs with that little one that I showed you, the first one, the one that goes in a circle, and I got 16 hatched. My Incuvue, the larger one that I showed you, there was a time I did 32 and got 31 hatched. You know, don't count your chickens before you hatch, but that's a pretty – that's a pretty good uh, hit. Uh, Yud's asking, what about the Nurture Right 360? Don't know. Never used it. Probably works fine. I think most of them uh, work pretty well. I also recommend that you get involved with the American Breast Chicken Group. And uh, breast is B-R-E-S-S-E. We have a telegram group. There will be a link in the show notes. Today, you can uh, join that group if you want. They've recently added a forum, and they talk about more than the breast chicken. I don't want to go deep into the breast chicken today, but if you're looking for a a dual-purpose bird, we have a whole group of people from the TSP community that are working with that breed, sourcing that breed, and our plan is long-term to keep our genetics diverse, to be able to exchange eggs, maybe swap some roosters here and there and things like that. But they're a great dual-purpose breed, and it's not... Not really fitting with what we're talking today, but I thought I would throw out a little shout out for it as well. Um, again, I want to just tell you to relax. Just relax on this whole thing. If you've not done it yet, don't think this is hard. There is a reason this was literally America's backyard protein for 150 years. You go back not that long ago in America. 70 years back and then go all the way back to when we were still colonies. And most people in America either kept chickens or one of the neighbors on four sides of them kept chickens. It was incredibly common. Most people, you go back that far, they fed only what they had to as an actual feed, right? As an act like feed that came in a bag. They fed scraps. The birds would free range and get bugs. They would bring stuff to the birds. Before the American chestnut blight, pigs and chickens were fed massive amounts of chestnut. Uh, people would literally like horse and buggy, or when they finally had pickup trucks, go into the forest with a like a number ten coal shovel. And if you've never seen a number ten coal shovel, this is a big flat shovel for shoveling like rice coal, like or, or nut coal into like a, a, a burner, big shovel. You use it as a snow shovel. Um, they would use those and they would literally shovel chestnuts uh, and then, and bring them home for their birds. The biggest problem they had was either a fox or a weasel that would kill their chickens. The chickens raised their own babies, took care of their own babies. And if you had a big enough flock, you'd have some broody moms. This fed America to a large degree, for for the majority of the time that America's been around. The time that we haven't used the chicken as a mainstay in, in what we call suburban America today is the minority, not the majority. They're pretty bulletproof. Humans have been working with chickens for hundreds, not thousands of years. They're adapted to be a partner to humankind. So don't stress. But the one thing I would say is don't let that lull you into making the, the actual big mistake people make with the chickens. And that is one day they decide they're going to get chickens. That happens to be in March. So it's chick days at Tracker Supply. And they're like, yeah, we really need a bunch of stuff, but it's, it, it's not that hard. And they go to Tracker Supply and they hear peep, 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 or Atwoods or wherever the feed store. Peep, peep. Oh, look at the little chickens. And they go get the chickens and they, they rig up a brooder from a stock tank or something like that and get a little chick feeder, a little chick water. And next thing you know, they've got a dozen chickens, feathers on, wings on. They need out of that brooder and they do not have the infrastructure in place. <clears throat> whatever you're going to do, coop and run, coop free range, whatever you're going to do. Have the basics in place before you get the baby birds. If you do that, everything will go pretty well for you. It really will. The final warning. You're responsible for your old birds, or you better have somebody that's happy to take care of them for you. When I'm checking for stuff on Craigslist, I will see at least a couple times a month at least a couple times a month. Somebody say something to the effect of, we have some chickens that we need to get rid of. They're not laying anymore. But we don't want them killed. They basically want somebody to adopt their chicken like you adopt a dog from the Humane Society. Folks, that's not a thing. There's no old hen retirement homes. And an old 10 is three years old. Be prepared that you're going to have these old birds. They might pop out an egg a week or so, but they're never going to, like I said, they'll never make you money from a, and I don't mean selling eggs. I mean, this bird is profitable to my home. here, you know, you're, I'm going to pay six bucks a dozen for top quality eggs, right? Yeah, tuger has got it. They go a Stew pot. You need to be okay with that. Now, if you don't personally want to do it, as long as you're responsible enough to talk to, like, your friends and you find, like, if you have a friend like me and you're like, Jack, once a year I'm going to have, like, a a half a dozen birds that need to retire, will you take them? You know, I might not take them on the exact day you want to bring them. Right, because I, I pretty much want them. Like if they're not part of my flock and they're just going to go in the freezer, I pretty much want them to come on a day I have time. But yeah, we'll make a deal within you know like a three week window somewhere. I'll be like, if you bring them on this Saturday, it'll be good. I'll I'll take them. It's free meat. Of course I'll take them. Or if you find a place like a lot of places you you around you you will find places that will process birds for you. There, that's actually not that hard to find. It's not like processing for resale. I got a place. I would not go down there for a half a dozen birds. I'll do it myself, but they do birds for four bucks a bird. So if you find someplace that'll do it and you're okay eating them, but you don't want to do the work, but you need to, you need to understand that that's your responsibility. Cause I see so much of it. You know, we want you to promise that you're not going to eat them. And I'm going to tell you what happens here in, in this, this area in Dallas, Fort Worth. There's a lot Mexicans love Chickens, and they love backyard chickens to eat, right? And I'm not saying anything negative. I'm just making an observation because when we've sold off flocks before, we've had them come and they've paid us twenty dollars for a grown bird that they're going to take. And you know, like, and like, yeah, they, they lay eggs, right? And you're like, well, this one's still will for a while. I'm like, dude, don't worry. I know what you're going to do. I'm okay with it. Like, we've just had times where, like, if I could get twenty bucks a bird for chickens. And we were selling off some flocks. It was just fine. Like, hey, if you're willing to pay that much, I'm not going to process them. I'll sell you a backyard chicken for $20, no problem. And so we would sell like half the flock and process half the flock. And so what happens is these guys go out, and they know people do this, and they'll be like, yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah, we're not going to kill a chicken. And that chicken lives about five minutes after it gets to its new home. And so just be, be aware of that. Let's go through some of the the, uh, the starred stuff here. Um, Tony, again, sent me a four ninety nine super chat. And he said, touch on chickens. 20 layers come in next week. This is perfect. Thank you. Doing your double run. Yeah, I, the double run is something that I just kind of glossed over. Um, but this was the victory garden. When you hear about dig a victory garden during World War II, chickens were so common that it was kind of assumed that you or somebody you knew had chickens. And what they would do is they would do exactly what I said. You put a run on both sides of the coop, and you garden one this season, and you run chickens on the other side. And that was a very, very common methodology. So, again, Tony, thank you for that. I appreciate it. Um, Hunter said, chicken tractor on steroids, is that a good thing? Scale up or down for a backyard? Again, I'm not big on – for the type of person I was trying to aim this at today. Now, chicken tractor on steroids. Billy Bond knows a lot more about that than I do. I find it to be a lot of work. I think it's. A, I think if you have the time or the manpower, it's an incredible way to go. And Jeff Lawton really perfected it in basically running the chicken tractor on steroids around the garden. And, you know, once it's once you got it running, it's basically every week he's turning out like a couple yards of really high-quality compost. Feeding the birds 100% on a waste stream, I think it's great. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. My method of composting is I free-range my birds. I make about four great big six-foot round rings of compost every year. I shovel all the stuff in there in one go. I soak it when I do it. Put some pipes in it. Pull the pipes out. It's like a modified Johnson Sioux. It makes great compost. I don't ever turn it. I don't turn it one time. Chickens might play with it a bit here and there. Um, I've gone over that before. <laughs> David says, why does it always have to be about size? Um, and David's the guy that I mentioned has kind of the really small indoor-outdoor, very cool chicken run thing going on. And I I pointed that out because uh, – because you don't have to go as big as I described today. Like you can, you can be very innovative. David needs to totally someday video his entire set of systems and make a 1995 downloadable product and make some damn money. He really does because what David's done is pretty amazing. The reason he's got to do the what is it about why is it about size thing is he gets mad at me because I constantly am showing him things like you know like this my text message like sending him zucchinis that are as big as my arm or troschino like this giant thing right here uh, that's why David has to always throw that comment in because he's a commenter it's what he does uh, Eka Mouse says Jack just moved into my just moved my brooders into the main coop away from the elders nine weeks old do I need to change their diet from trick crumble to layer? Elders get scratch and layer plus grown vegetable scratch. See, this is something I'll tell you, honestly, I worry a lot less about now than I used to. So I used to be big on you feed your babies chick starter and then they get to a point where they're eating like grower. And then you don't want them eating the the, the calcium enhanced layer crumble until they're of laying age. And then I started having birds hatch babies. And guess what they did? They ate whatever the hell they wanted. You know what happened to them? Nothing bad happened to them. So now I basically, when I have babies, I feed them chick starter. I try to, like, if a mother's brooding, I try to do things where the babies can get the feed, but the rest of the flock can't. Not because I'm worried about the, what happens to the flock if they eat chick starter. It's I don't, it's it's expensive feed, and I don't I, I need it for the babies. So I feed them that until they're big enough to eat pellets. Because I feed pellets. To, that's something I didn't talk about today. I don't feed crumble to my adult birds because I find it has a lot more waste. I feed pellets to my adult birds. And when the babies are big enough to eat pellets, they eat freaking pellets. And I don't worry about it. And they're going to get too much calcium and they're gonna, uh, do whatever you want. I, I'm, I'm not worried about it. As soon as they have the ability to co-mingle they eat whatever the other birds eat because they're going to do it anyway, and you're not going to stop it. Now, I have seen some pretty smart people do things when you have a broody hen who has chicks that's with the flock. This is more of a larger scale like what I do. Take something like just a, a piece of, uh like, fencing that's got a big enough gap that baby chickens can get in and out and adult chickens can't, make a loop, put it in the chicken coop, put a chick feeder inside it, the babies go in and they eat their food and the big birds can't steal it. That's, that's like the most effort I've ever put into it is, you know, taking a, a, a ring of, of horse fence that babies can go in and adults can't. That, that's about it. I don't, I don't worry about it very much. Um, Wicked Mother said, are there any chicken scraps you would prevent your chickens from getting uh, like onions, peppers, coffee grounds, etc. No, I throw everything in the. I have basically um, some cinder blocks that make like a pit, and then we have a thing that sits on our countertop, and all our compostables go in there. And when it's full, when I go out in the morning, I take it out and I dump it in there. Here's how I feel about that: chickens do do not like onion peels, so you know what, they don't eat them. Chickens do not like orange peels. See you know what? They don't eat them. When I have, like, some trimmings from the green onions and, like, the end pieces weren't so nice, so I didn't use them in my cooking, and I throw them in there, chickens don't like that. They don't eat them. Chickens don't eat coffee grounds. You know what? I just throw the coffee grounds in the compost, and the chickens don't eat them. What happens is all of that stuff breaks down and starts the composting process, it attracts bacteria and fungi and bugs and worms and all kinds of things. And the chickens eat that. I believe that when you, if you watch a chicken working compost, you will see them at times pecking. And Jeff Lawton's commented on this too. And you look and you really can't even see and you're like, they can see things smaller than we can. And they're eating tiny things that we would literally consider microscopic. I remember a video, and I, I was like, I, I've always felt the same way, and I felt like I was crazy. But I remember Jeff, one of his videos of the chicken tractor on steroids, he's like looking, and this chicken's like, he's like, I, she's got better eyes than me. I have no idea what she's eating. She's eating things we can't see. So I don't worry about it, and, and that's what I think ends up happening. Hunter says, can I call dibs on those chicks you don't want? Uh, we'll see. I'll probably, the roosters are definitely going to grow up and get eaten. Um, I really didn't want them right now. They are like small bantams, just so you know. Uh, but, you know, if you come by, maybe I maybe give a few of them to you because I didn't really need new ones right now. And I'm thinking about going to Brest and getting rid of my bantams. Uh, hang and Laundry, your opinion on using an old root cellar for chickens? Okay, so my only concern with that is that you're going to have all this floor material you're going to have to haul up and out of there. You also are in a wet, dank environment. They'll probably be fine, but I think you might have more problems with odors that way. If it's, in like, in the side of the hill type arrangement, it's probably less of a concern. Um, so I think it's more of a logistics and how damp is it going to be in there? Uh, because root solars are fairly damp, generally speaking, Tony says, can you hit on their first few weeks of live temperature feed airflow? This is another place I think that we have gotten – we've read way too many forum posts. We've we've seen way too many books, things like that. Um, They do need to keep warm, and they do need to keep dry. But I've read things like the chicken's temperature needs to be 101 degrees Fahrenheit – for their first week of life. And you can then decline it by one degree a day. For, Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. Don't talk to people anymore if you say that. You you, you need to not be allowed to talk to human beings if you're going to say something like that. So I watch my chickens that raise babies, and they do puff up and they keep them nice and warm. I'm sure it's like 101 degrees inside mommy's wing pit or whatever. Then I watch that little chicken, like get off mommy's back and go do some things and mess around and chase a bug and then come back to mommy. Was that chicken 101 degrees when it was 75 degrees outside and it was doing that? No. So basically what I do, if I have to brood, I get a bit like a big Rubbermaid tub or like a big uh, Tupperware thing. And I have an old screen door that I throw on top of it. And I put a, brooder light on one end, and I don't put a brooder light on the other end. And they go where they want to go. If they're cold, they go under the light. If they're too warm, they leave. And they spend a ton of time not under that light. That's why I would say, like, shut up, shut up, about the 101 degree thing. Because they don't spend most of their time under that light. And basically, before they go out in the world, you want them feathered. Once they're feathered, they're, they're in a pretty good state to go out in the world. Um, and it's usually about a three-week process. I have absolutely brooded birds outside their entire lives, though, even when they don't have a broody head. I've literally put them in a small chicken tractor and made sure they had a heat lamp on one side and made sure they were covered and they didn't get too much sun or too much wind or get too wet. And I've done it successfully. I've done it with caging inside the chicken coop. I actually like this method a lot. The babies are with the the new adults, and the new babies are together, but they can't be picked on, and they kind of become okay with each other. My my best luck with introducing when it's time for this bird to be introduced to the flock, and so we've got maybe a six-week-old bird, and we want to just put it with our flock. We want everybody to get along. They're going to fight some. It's okay. Don't worry. Unless you see like a rooster pin another bird up against the thing and start packing the shit out of it, pecking and, and just being a little bit bitchy with each other. It's okay. Wait till everybody's on the roost. Wait till it's actually dark. Chicken's getting kind of this like trance-like, like you can just pick them up off the roost. like, well, going on, man. They look like a dude that's drunk and stoned at the same time. Wait till they're in that state. Take your new birds put them up on the roost right next to everybody else. They have a pretty small brain, not a lot of power there, not a lot of thinking, not a not a lot of concepts of time. They kind of wake up and it's like I guess you were always there. And they just kind of move on with their lives. So that's kind of my introduction uh methodology. Uh Thomas says how loud are hens and roosters? Well, it depends. So I generally say that if there's any potential problems from neighbors or the man, the Department of Making You Sad, just forget roosters. Roosters are going to crow. They're going to crow every morning. They're going to crow randomly throughout the day, and they're going to crow in the evening. And sometimes they crow at like 4 o'clock in the morning. I don't know why, but they just do. I hear my birds inside their coop crow in the mornings when the house is quiet. If the TV's on or anything, I don't hear them. But when I first get up in the morning, I'm making coffee, everything's quiet, the wife has left, the dogs are calm, I'll be, I'll hear like, rawr, rawr, rawr. I'm like, oh, well, I better, that's right, I better go let everybody out. Hens are generally quiet, but there are times that, like I was talking about the one that Dorothy took all her eggs and she was just out there just going and going and going. Sometimes when they're laying an egg, I guess they're having a little bit of trouble getting out. Hens can be noisy too. I find that your full-size kind of gentle breeds are less noisy in general. You can still have, like, you know, are people noisy? You can have a group of people and, like, five of them just kind of sit on their phones and never talk to anybody. A couple of them kind of talk, like, you know, a little low volume. And you can have, like, some people that are like the life of the party. Birds are like that, you know. So sometimes you might – this is something I didn't really get into, but sometimes what you really might want to do is you might want to have, I want to have six birds. Well, maybe you want to get 10. And then that has four of them that can graduate early. Yeah. Like they're problems. They're bullies or there's just something not right about them or they're noisy. And you have some that you can get rid of. It's another thing you can do when you go, if you're going in a cycle, and you have a dual-purpose breed you're using. You want a dozen birds, or you want six birds. Get a dozen every cycle, and you have a, you have six that you're retiring that are old stewing birds, and six that are young, a little bit more tender, more of a frying chicken, broiler chicken, roasting chicken. Like that's something else you can do. But halves halves two is one, one is none applies to birds too. K box and coop versus tractor. I think we've covered that both during the thing and. Uh, in a follow-up already with the chicken tractor and service question. Ecomouse said raccoons will pop a bird's head off in a heartbeat, and they will, even if they can't eat that bird. Raccoons are curious. Raccoons want to see what happens. There was a time that we had a – we called it the raccoon – the Scotch and Chardonnay-infused raccoon murder fest when Dorothy and I lived in Arkansas. This is not directly to do with chickens, but it is how raccoons are. So the raccoons kept smashing Dorothy's bird bird feeders that we had out on the on the deck, and I kept saying like they're not going to stop. So I, I rigged up the the bird feeder so they could not be taken down. I had these like clevises that would screw tight and chains and wire, and they would still like turn them upside down and smash them. And she was still like, "Don't kill the raccoons. No, they're cute. Don't kill the raccoons." And they came every night as soon as all the lights went off. Well, so I built her this beautiful hugo bed, and she filled it up with tulips. That's my wife's favorite flower. Well, one night, the raccoon troop came, and they were just curious, like, what are these things? She had probably 200 tulips in that mound. They pulled all of them out. They didn't eat them. They just pulled them all out. Like, get up in the morning, and it looked like somebody went out there and just with their hands pulled all the tulips out. And she's like, kill them. So for a few weeks to call the population, well, just before bed, instead of going to bed, with the 410 shotgun out, I'd pour a scotch. She'd pour a Chardonnay. I'd sit in one window and she'd sit in the other window. She's like, they're coming. Wango. And I'd kill a couple of night until the population was called out. And, uh, and that was just what they, they just wanted to find things out. So they will do things like pull a chicken set off. If you keep quail, and they can reach inside a quail cage. They'll pull quail heads off. They'll pull quail through the cage in pieces. Uh, yeah, you gotta you got to think about those guys. I miss those days. Those were fun days. Ecomouse says, 36 likes. yet had 87 watching. Smash that like button. If you're getting anything of value from Jack's session today, do not incur the wrath of the Ecomouse. Do not want that. Do what she says and smash the like button. Trammell says biochar in the coop floor will help odor and useful for garden after. I completely agree, and I should have said that. Um, I have a little kiln that I make biochar with from scrap scrap trimmings and stuff like that, and I'll do that off, and I'll just take – I have buckets of it, and I'll go in there when I'm doing my stuff, and I'll just throw a few handfuls down. And then that ends up in the compost. It ends up charged up with nitrogen. Uh, really great comment there. Thank you for that. Trammell says keep one or two broody hens and cull the rest on a rotation. Yeah, that's actually a good point. If you have a bird and she's big on going broody and you want that, and you're it's coming time to cull that generation, she now some of my grandparents were like she's earned her keep and she'll keep brooding even when she's not laying a lot. And those were the ones, like we had this, like, we'd have like a chicken that hadn't laid an egg in years. She's just old as hell. Too tough to eat. Rubber band chicken. And you'd be, and you'd be like, well, why do we start? She raised like seven broods. That chicken, she earned her, that's the chicken that actually gets a full on retirement. That ends up living as long as she's, that's, she gets to be a pet. Yeah, she does that. So, so good on that. Um, Liberty Meat Solutions said, "Can you tuck on? Ch- can you touch on chicken math? They need to know. I'm not sure what you mean by that. On chicken math, are you talking about ROI? Because that is something that's important. Um, and that's what I talked about with the feed debt. So you can clarify that if you mean something else by it. But you do need to understand that it's not a really profitable thing um, from a standpoint of." Birds making a lot of money from a standpoint of saving money. You're not saving money generally by having a backyard chicken flock. You're building, you're making a better product and you're having a multi, a multi-function asset. I have eggs. I have eggs even if I can't go to the store. I have a better quality egg. I have a compost processing system. Okay. And I have a meat yield at the end with a call. I, I don't know if that's what you're asking, but if you are, that's a valid point. Uh, if you mean something else, tell me, and I'll try to get it done. I want to finish up here soon, though. Thoughts on having an incubator or not? We covered that one, hanging laundry, so we'll just let that one go. Uh, John Bunding said, quantity of feed per chicken per day. You're generally in the neighborhood of requirement of feed on a laying flock once grown and producing of about 0.35 pounds of feed per day if the chicken is relying 100% on feed. I feed my birds pretty much free rain rat, free, free ration. Like they take what they want when they want it, but I base mine on about a quarter pound per duck per day, but I'm running ducks on pasture in the summer. Like it just started raining again and everything's turning green and they have lots of forage. And now I'll go back to that during like dry period of my summer when the, once the grasshoppers were gone, I fed them as much as they were eating a day. I, I didn't put them on any ration at all. A small backyard flock. Your feed bill's not going to be that big. I would get a 50 pound hopper feeder that's waterproof and rat proof and fill it up. And I would start figuring out when I need to fill it back up. That, that would be, that's what I would do if I was in the situation we've been describing today. EcoMouse says, Jack, carrot tops are great for chickens as well if you don't make pesto with it. Yeah, they, I said, they'll, they'll either eat it, they'll eat it after it starts to break down or they'll eat the thing that eats it. I do like me some carrot tops for cooking, though, I will tell you that. Carrot tops are parsley, guys. I mean, that's the way to look at them. And Trammell says, hens will complain when someone is in their spot for laying. This is true. Birds often, like, you can put laying boxes in your coop or whatever, and you've got, like, six chickens in six boxes. No possible conflict. Everybody likes one box, or two or three birds like one box. And somebody's in the box and I want to go in the box and she won't get out of the box and then they'll start that bah, 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 bitching and bitching and like hey, it's like it's like one woman yelling at another woman to get out of the damn bathroom so she can get in there and do her makeup. It, it's is how it comes out. That bothers somebody tough. That's what it is. Um I don't use conventional laying boxes. And I think this might be a little interesting thing that I meant to cover, but you know, with the power going out and all, I, I mixed it. What I use for laying boxes in my coop, I don't even know what you call them, but they're like a top, like a, like a storage tray thing. And they, they'll nest together, but they're also designed for they stack and they're kind of a front. You can reach into them. I can't think of what they're called. Uh, but they have them at Home Depot and Lowe's. They're made out of like, uh, like plastic. And if you turn them upside down, they have a little hole. (laughs) <laughs> Look who's here! The wife <laughs> that bothers me with a smiling face. Dorothy's on the live feed through Facebook. What are you doing on Facebook, honey? You're on YouTube. Anyway, um, they, they they go in there and they lay eggs, and I just put those upside down in the coop. What we're about to do, and I didn't touch on this, we're about to start. We're gonna go get. Well, I've never done it before. We're gonna get some of the fake eggs that you put in a spot because they like to lay eggs where other eggs are. And see if we can, uh, quell some of this, uh, laying in planters, laying in wicking beds. Cause they're, what's actually happened to us guys is we've had bad fire ants this year and the eggs are getting invaded. The, we've had babies killed by fire ants this year. And so the chickens have figured out if they get up into things that they're protected from the fire ants and they've stopped laying in the coop because we take their eggs and are like, you jerks are taking our eggs and they're such broody birds. That when you start taking their eggs, they're like, I can't, I can't sit on them because of you, you jerks. So we're gonna, we're gonna try the fake egg thing. Uh, Art by Lee Murphy says golf balls to train them. How many golf balls? I wonder what's cheaper, golf balls or fake chicken eggs. And uh, anyway, I think that wraps things up for today. I appreciate you guys uh, being here. I want to remind you guys you can help support the show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's t s p a z, tspaz.com. And here's our item of the day today. It's the Quinliff five outlet extender. It's got four USB charging ports. It's actually three standard USBs and one USB C and five outlets. This thing's about 16 bucks. They market it as a surge protector. You can read my write up and see why I don't consider anything like this a surge protector. This is what I like about this thing though. One, for those who can see it, look at the form factor. You've got those angles on the sides. And that means that you can actually use all five of the electrical outlets and actually use them. And the one that's on the front is down low, so you can use all four of the USB ports easily as well. It's got a little tiny indicator light on it, and that is nice compared to the other cable masters one I recommend because that's like a night light. Big thing here though is where that little night light is, there is a screw. You take the faceplate off the outlet you're going to install this on. You plug this in and you put that screw back in so when you unplug things, it doesn't pull out the whole thing out of the wall. So it's very efficient, works really, really great, uh, does not light the room up like a nightlight, sticks to the wall, and you can access all of the plugs. It's pretty slick. Um, this is one of those things like Amazon got me with collateral marketing. People who like this have also bought I'm like, I'll try one of those. So you can get that at tspaz.com. Again, 16 bucks. And if you do your online shopping at tspaz.com, you can help us out with no matter what you buy. You can also become a member of the MSB. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more. And if you want to make sure you get announcements about live streams and anything going on with TSP, get on the Daily Mail, the survivalpodcast.com, click the Daily Mail tab, fill that out. Or get on the Telegram channel, and you'll always get announcements about cool things whenever they happen. If you're on YouTube, like and subscribe and click the little bell. That way, whenever something's going on, you'll get an alert from the people at ScrewTube as well. Thank you guys for being with us today. I hope you guys uh, enjoyed today's episode. Sorry about the outage, but we were able to come back from it two days in a row now. And it uh, looks like the storms are gone and we got through it. I will catch you tomorrow with an expert council Q&A show.
0: You pull yourself up. They keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way